we really are a species of moonshots, even though we've largely forgotten it. We've been seduced into believing that that small dreams are wiser than moonshots, that coasting is better than soaring, that flying lower is safer than flying higher. So even in moments like this, where the world is turned topsy-turvy, where there's so much uncertainty, there is a lot of room for moonshot thinking. Do you want to be a leader who gets noticed, gets things done, and gets real results? Then you need influence and authority. Join host Jennifer McClure to learn how to build authority, expand your influence, and increase your impact. This is the Impact Makers Podcast with Jennifer McClure. Hey there, Impact Makers. Thanks for joining me for episode number 47 of the Impact Makers Podcast. How many times have you heard the phrase, well, it's not exactly rocket science when someone is referring to something as easy? I guess that means that we associate those who actually are rocket scientists with being exceptionally smart. And while that's probably true, actually it it is true, the reality is that you and I can think like a rocket scientist without actually having to send anything into space. And that is a relief because I don't think anybody wants to go into space in something that I've had a hand in creating. So just how do rocket scientists think? And how can you and I apply that thinking to our work and our lives in order to increase our impact? Well, today's guest has an idea. In fact, he's been there, done that, and has written the book on it. Ozan Farrell is a rocket scientist turned award-winning professor and number one best-selling author. He's one of the world's foremost experts in creativity, innovation, and critical thinking. Ozan grew up in Istanbul, Turkey, learned English as his second language, and moved to the United States by himself at the age of 17 to attend Cornell University and major in astrophysics in order to achieve his dream of becoming an American astronaut. While attending Cornell, he served on the operations team for the 2003 Mars Exploration Rovers Project that sent two rovers, Spirit and Opportunity, to Mars. Then in a surprising twist, he ditched the dream to become an astronaut and chose to attend law school instead, where in true rocket scientist form, he graduated first in his class, earning the highest grade point average in the school's history. After practicing law for a few years, he decided to join the ranks of academia at Lewis and Clark Law School in beautiful Portland, Oregon, where he became a law professor with the goal of influencing others to make giant leaps on Earth. In 2020, April 2020 to be exact, Ozan's book, Think Like a Rocket Scientist, Simple Strategies You Can Use to Make Giant Leaps in Work and Life, was published, and it was recently named one of Inc.com's six best business books you need to read in 2020. It's also listed as one of Amazon's top 20 books of 2020 in three categories, nonfiction, business, and science, and was chosen as the number one pick on a noted author, Adam Grant's list of the top 20 leadership books of 2020. I recently connected with Ozan and have enjoyed learning from him through his popular weekly emails, and I'm challenging myself to apply the nine strategies in his book to make giant leaps in my work and in my life. I think you'll get a lot of great takeaways from my conversation with Ozan today, And you can find links in the show notes to connect with him, buy the book, and sign up for his weekly email that shares one big idea that you can read in three minutes or less. Thanks for joining me. I am very interested in you and your background, and I know we have a lot to chat about today, but I know a little bit about you. But for those who maybe have not connected with you prior to this, why don't you share a little bit about yourself? Sure. I was uh, born and raised in Istanbul, came to the United States when I was 17 to 
study astrophysics. I grew up in a family of no English speakers, but I had this dream of becoming an astronaut one day and working on a space mission. And so I applied to colleges in the US, went to Cornell, studied astrophysics, ended up working on the operations team for the 2003 Mars Exploration Rovers Project, which sent two rovers to Mars. Their names were Spirit and Opportunity. And then I did a complete 180, went to law school, practiced law for a few years, and then transitioned into academia, became a law professor. That was about 10 years ago. And then a few years ago, I pivoted yet again and started writing books for mainstream audiences, started doing a lot of keynote speaking and podcasting and the like. So yeah, that's me in a nutshell. As I said, I could I could talk to you for much more than an hour, but I'm going to try to limit my curiosity to, to this time frame. So I have started your book. I haven't finished it yet, but obviously the, the first part where you tell a little bit about your story is very interesting and how you got interested in kind of you know, astrophysics and whatever and, and how that happened. But I want to start with, I've been to Istanbul twice, blessed to have been there twice, love the city. What is your favorite thing, place about Istanbul? I really love the mix of historical and modern, the mix of people, religious, non-religious. It's really the crossroads. I mean, geographically, obviously, it is between Europe and Asia, but it's a crossroads in so many different ways as well, uh, culturally, demographically. And so, and I love that. I also love Turkish food. Oh, yes. <laughs> That's probably one of the things I miss most about Turkey is, is the food. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting, you know, you talk about in your kind of story of your youth and the education system there about being very conformist and regimented, but that's not how you describe your city and obviously not how you kind of ultimately came out of there. What do you think was unique about you that that you did kind of come out of a system where it was about conforming and you were really about not? Yeah, that's a great question, Jennifer. So just to give the listeners some some background, I think most education systems are conformist to some extent, even in the United States, like the education system here, grade schools, really designed for the industrial age to create these compliance factory workers where you're just working the assembly line and you're doing what your supervisor asks you to do, uh, which in the case of an education system is the person behind the podium. I think in Turkey, and I would say other countries as well that might be similarly situated, that conformity is just taken to an extreme. To give one example, I remember in primary school, our principal did not call us by our first name. So we were all assigned numbers. And I won't tell you my number because to this day, it's my my bank pin code. <laughs> and uh, it's just sort of seared into my, my memory. But that's how we would be called. It would be like 154 or 358 and not by our first name. And that's just emblematic of the way that the entire system operated. You know, there is one right answer to every question. There is one right way to interpret history as told in the, you know, the history books. There is one right curriculum. So there are just answers that have been determined by people far smarter than you. And your job is to memorize those answers and then spit them back out on a standardized test. Mm-hmm. So that for me, so there was a clash between the conformity that I experienced in the education system during the day, and then what I would do on my own. So I was really drawn to science fiction 
books. So I would like devour books by Isaac Asimov and Arthur C. Clarke and Ray Bradbury. I would just buy all I could afford and, and just read them. I was really drawn to learning about astronomy. And a lot of that was, I think, nourished by my parents. I remember growing up, we used to lose our electricity supply quite a bit. So we'd have these blackouts and I was like three or four years old and I'd just get terrified as a little boy, It'd just be dark all of a sudden. And so to, to distract me, my dad came up with a game. He would grab my soccer ball, we'd have candles lit around the house. He would rotate the soccer ball around the candle to show me how the, the earth rotated around the sun. Mm -hmm. um, those were my first astronomy lessons, and, and I was hooked. So I was stuck in this conformist education system during the day, but then at night, on my own time, I was devouring science fiction books. I was watching Cosmos, the original series by Carl Sagan, and dreaming about one day becoming an astronaut. Really? So your dad, though, was not a scientist, correct? He was an engineer. An engineer. So yep. he had an interest in that and then kind of passed that along to you because my dad didn't sit around the table showing me <laughs> astrophysics. <laughs> he didn't. <laughs> so yeah. we, as your interest in that grew, was the goal to come to the United States to get an education, become a U.S. astronaut, or, or was it not that fully fledged out that early? No, I actually, in, in middle school, I remember sitting down and I researched, I created this like spreadsheet. I researched the biography of every single civilian astronaut that worked for NASA. Oh, wow. And I couldn't go through the military route because I was not a US citizen, but the civilian option was an opportunity for me. And I identified common denominators, like how did they get to where they are? All of them had you know, advanced degrees from a prestigious college in the United States, majoring in some science or engineering field. I remember all of them had pilot's licenses. And so there were just certain paths that they took that looked to me like clear prerequisites and so, so then I worked backward from them. Like, okay, if I need an advanced degree from a prestigious college, I first have to learn English because I grew up in a family of no English speakers. I have to research college admissions, like how that works. And there's this thing called the SAT that apparently I have to study for and, and figure out how to do. And so I was, I was planning those out and charting my course, yeah, back in, back in middle school. That's fascinating that you, you engineered your career from an early age. And did you check off all the boxes on your spreadsheet of things you needed to accomplish? No, almost all the boxes. I got a pilot's license in college. Uh, I went to Cornell to study astrophysics. I thought about getting an advanced degree, which is what would have been sort of the next logical step to becoming an astronaut. But for reasons we can get into later, I decided not to do that. And instead, I ended up going to, to law school. But the great thing about, and you know, I refer to this thinking, this type of thinking as moonshot thinking in the book. The great thing about moonshot thinking is you don't have to get your moonshot. You know, mm -hmm. I'm not an astronaut, at, at least not yet. <laughs> we'll see, yeah. we'll see what the next few decades bring, especially with private space travel. But even if you don't get what you're aiming for, you end up soaring far higher than you otherwise would. Like if I hadn't planned out and if I hadn't, you know, applied to college in the United States and majored in astrophysics at Cornell, I never would have worked on the, the operations team for the Mars Exploration Rovers Project. Like if I wasn't aiming to become an astronaut, I never would have done the things that got me to where I am today. I love that thinking. Now, 
you did come to us, you did get the degree, you did get the opportunity to kind of work in that space. And then you decided to become a lawyer where that wasn't on the spreadsheet. How did that happen? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, it's, it's one of those things where, um, I, and I've gotten much better at this over time. I think there can be a downside to, to grit. The grit is certainly valuable, but if you're persisting in, in doing the wrong things, doing things that are not aligned with who you are, eventually you're going to burn out. And one of the things I realized in college, I loved working on the Mars mission. I mean, that was incredible. I did not love the classes I was taking. They were you know, theoretical physics classes. And they felt so disconnected from reality, which is somewhat ironic because astrophysics is supposed to be all about like describing reality and how the universe works. But if you just look at the instruction, it was so theoretical. And I've always been more interested in practical applications rather than learning theory, which is why I, was, I enjoyed working on the Mars mission so much because it was all about practical questions and practical problem solving. Like, how do you get a lander to Mars and land it safely? What do you do once it lands there? How do you pick landing sites? All of those questions were fascinating, but for me to get anywhere with astrophysics would have required an advanced degree, master's, PhD, and it just would have been torture for me to do another seven, eight years of those theoretical classes that I wasn't enjoying. And so I ended up taking a law class that was taught by a Cornell law professor, but he taught it only for undergrads. And he used the same you know, Socratic method that's used in law schools. We read real cases. So it gave me a really good glimpse of what law school would be like. And I loved it. It was like a breath of fresh air. You know, you read a case, a very practical case, a dispute between two real people. And interestingly, you know, there's so much more synergy between rocket science and law that might appear at first blush. Both require critical thinking. Both require the ability to make decisions under immense pressure. Both require the ability, which is a rare ability, I think, and it took me a long time to develop it, to look at an issue from multiple perspectives. You know, the scientific method is all about trying to prove yourself wrong, trying to see other perspectives that you may have missed. And being a lawyer requires you to see the issue from your opponent's perspective. I always tell my students that the best lawyers are the ones who know the opposition's argument better than the opposition does. And that's integral to the, to the scientific method. That's how you try to falsify yourself is, you know, you try to put yourself in an opponent's shoes and you try to beat the crap out of your own ideas. And so there's actually a lot of carryover between the two fields. And so my rocket science training served me well when I ended up going to law school. So all of the aspiring lawyers out there need to add degree in astrophysics to their <laughs> spreadsheet. Or any, any sort of science <laughs> or engineering degree. And, it, you know, I've been a law professor now for 10 years and the very best students I've had have come from science and engineering backgrounds um, for that, for that reason, because they already come equipped with a lot of the skills that are necessary to, to think like a lawyer. Did you pursue a certain type of law that you intended to practice or did, did you did ultimately practice? You know, law school is pretty general. And when I went into practice, I just wanted to get exposure to, to different areas to see, you know, which one would interest me the most. And I practiced for a few years, but then I really missed the intellectual simulation that came with the academic environment. I was, I've always been drawn to teaching. So after practicing for three years, I decided to give teaching a shot. So I took a temporary like two-year teaching position just to see what it would be like. 
And it was sort of a, a way of experimenting, basically, because I wasn't sure if I wanted to completely dive into the academic pool. So this was a way of putting my toes in the water, see if I liked it, and I really enjoyed it. And then I ended up applying for tenure track positions and ultimately teaching my specialty in academia became constitutional law, specifically comparative constitutional law. And so comparing how different countries approach similar constitutional problems and what we can learn, say, as a scholar of the U.S. Constitution, what we can learn from say, what Turkey does with their separation of of religion and and states. And again, comparison came naturally to me, not only because of my foreign background, but science is always about comparing. You know, you, you compare star formation in different galaxies as an astronomer. So I was able to bring that over to, to comparative constitutional law. Interesting. I think when I was kind of reading your, your journey and in the introduction to your book, what kind of stood out to me is that you set a goal, you achieve the goal, but then you pursue what's next or you create something that you don't stay where you are. So you didn't stay in the rocket science goal. You didn't stay in the lawyer goal. You haven't stayed in the professor goal, even though you still do that. And then you pushed beyond that to speaking and writing. Where did that come from? I like to think of it as, and I, and I think you, you hit the nail in the head, Jennifer. I, I like to think of it as like the snake is the, the ancient symbol of transformation. And the way that the snake operates is it has to shed its old skin for new skin to emerge. It literally has to crawl out of its old skin for this new vibrant skin to emerge. If the old skin doesn't come off, the snake can actually die. But if the transformation is completed successfully, then this new, beautiful, vibrant skin emerges. And I like to think of myself in a similar vein. I do things for a little while. And then once I realize either that they're not aligned with who I am or that I stop learning and growing, it's time for me to shed old skin and, and put on a new one. And that allows me a number of different things. I think life becomes more interesting. You know, We're here on earth for a short amount of time. And if you can live multiple lifetimes in one, great. You get to do different things. It also allows me to cross-pollinate ideas from seemingly very different disciplines. I can take what I learned from rocket science and apply it to, to law, as I did when I practiced it. I can apply it to teaching. I can now apply, wrote a book about, you know, called Think Like a Rocket Scientist, about how you can take these simple strategies from rocket science and apply them to make giant leaps in your own work and life. I can apply them in my keynote speaking to challenges that that businesses are facing. So playing with multiple boxes allows you to connect these seemingly disconnected ideas and, and create something new. And so my transition into then popular writing and popular speaking came because after seven years. So I started my online platform in 2016. So after six years of only writing to academic audiences in this very small subspecialty field of comparative constitutional law, where maybe like I'd spend a year writing this article that only 20 people would read, you know, you could only do that, or at least I could only do that for so long. It was great while it lasted, but I had this itch to shed that old skin and and write in a way that's going to have a, a bigger impact. And so that was the impetus for me to transition into popular writing and start a blog, a podcast, and then eventually get an agent and, and write a book called Think Like a Rocket Scientist. So what did you start writing about in 2016 when you created your platform? 
Yeah, I had no idea what I was going to write about. <laughs> and that was actually one of the one of the biggest roadblocks, I think. I I wanted to start my website probably back in 2014 or 2015, but I had no idea what I was going to write about. And so until I put up the website, put up my blog, hit publish, the ideas just were not there. I think we often think of it the opposite way, right? You you know, you come up with the branding, you come up with the messaging, you come up with exactly what you're going to write about and then you start in my experience, it works the other way around. Like the mm-hmm. ideas don't start to come until you start and then you make a commitment to yourself to, in my case, it was to write a blog post every week. Mm-hmm. It was only after then that some ideas began to emerge. But initially it was just sort of like um, whatever interested me. I think the first article I ever wrote on the blog was about how I read like 50 books in a year. And it was tips about like, you know, trying to make time for reading in your life, which eventually had nothing to do with what I would write about. But that was at the time what I was thinking about. And so after making this commitment and actually getting into the rhythm of writing every week, some themes began to emerge at this sweet spot between what interests me, what I enjoy writing about, and what resonates with audiences. And that to me became about, so my website and my my writing became about reimagining the status quo, taking a look at conventional wisdom and asking why, is there a better way? And, and so I started writing about that and that started resonating with audiences and, and it, all, uh, it all went from, from there. But if there are people listening to this and thinking to themselves, you know, I need to come up with the right messaging, the right branding, the right fill in the blank to get started, I'm here to tell you that those things usually don't happen, don't fall into place until after you start. And even if you have an idea of what you're going to write about, chances are that it's actually going to change pretty dramatically once you do start writing. Yeah, one of my coaches and mentors has, I I repeat it to myself often during these times where we're kind of changing into what's next, it's clarity comes through action. And that's Carrie Mm -hmm. Oberbrunner, who was a guest on the podcast early on. And I think that's true. And that's what you've described. You you just got to take action. And then eventually, you'll find both what you're passionate about, and also what resonates. So you started writing. And then when once you landed on kind of the things you were interested in writing about and resonate, was that when the book idea came about or did that kind of come happen sequentially? You know, the, yeah, I would say about a year or two, because one of the things that I noticed people were really drawn to, especially when I did keynote speeches, like when whoever is introducing me goes through my resume and they say, oh, Ozan was a rocket scientist, I could see the audience visibly shift and become really curious about that. And so I started then talking more about my rocket science past and what I learned from that. And again, noticed that the audiences really resonated with those stories and strategies. And so I started thinking about writing a book around how to think like a rocket scientist. And one of the things I did to grow my platform initially was to, I would take what I wrote and then I was syndicated on other more popular platforms. And so I had this partnership with, they were called Helio back then, and then eventually became the next big idea club. And through that, I got to know Adam Grant. He reached out to me after reading one of my articles and offered to introduce me to his literary agent. And so his agent, Richard Pine, and I started talking. And then we both thought that this idea of Think Like a Rocket Scientist would really resonate based on what he knew from, from the industry and also based on my own experience with, with audiences, having both written on the blog about 
how to think like a rocket scientist and also sharing some of these strategies with live audiences and in keynote speeches. And yeah, so through discussions with him, we settled on the topic for the book. Interesting. I know I have a keynote that uh, I've, I've mentioned it will probably, I guess, need to be retired now. It was called, it was about disrupting HR and the future of work. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I, I talked about was moonshot thinking and using the example of the, you know, the Google moonshots and Astro Teller. I love his name. Right. If nothing else, he was born for that, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but I'm obviously not qualified to really dig deeply into the, the moonshot thinking, but you are, and, and you even attracted the attention of Adam Grant through your writing. So that's interesting. How do you think moonshot thinking in a time where everything's upside down and people feel chaos, but yet you know, myself and others, we need to reinvent. So is now the time for moonshot thinking or how do you get kind of restarted or kickstart when everything around you is not what you recognize? Yeah, I think um, if we can zoom out and actually go back to the first moonshot moment, just so the audience knows what moonshot thinking is, because I'm sure you've heard that term before, but the term came about, of course, when when Kennedy, John F. Kennedy, stepped up to the podium at Rice University Stadium and pledged to land a man on the moon. This was in September 1962 that he gave that speech. Pledged to land a man on the moon before the decade was out and return him safely to the earth. And he said, we choose to go to the moon, not because it's easy, but because it's hard. And it was so hard at the time. It was quite literally a moonshot. So much of what was required to land on the moon hadn't even been invented yet. Like, no American astronaut had worked outside of a spacecraft. Two spacecraft had never docked together in space. NASA didn't know if the lunar surface was solid enough to support a lander, whether the communication system would work on the moon. JFK actually said some of the metals required to build the rockets hadn't even been invented. So we just jumped into the cosmic void and hoped that we'd grow wings on the way up. And just seven years after Kennedy's pledge, Neil Armstrong took his giant leap for mankind. You know, against impossible odds, we, we turned the seemingly impossible into the possible. And, and putting that accomplishment in context, this always gives me goosebumps to think that a, a child who was just six years old, when the Wright brothers took their first flight, which lasted like 10 seconds and moved about 100 feet, that child would have been 72 when flight became powerful enough to put a man on the moon. I mean, think about that for a moment. That's 66 years. That's a dizzying amount of speed from Wright Brothers to Neil Armstrong. And that, I think a lot of people attribute that to to technology uh, or the triumph of technology, but really it was a triumph of a certain thought process that these rocket scientists used. and, And that's moonshot thinking. And I think moonshot thinking has been with us long before. I mean, that was our first actual moonshot, but we've been taking metaphorical moonshots long before Neil Armstrong walked on the lunar surface. Like our ancestors who blaze a trail to some unknown corner of the earth, they took a moonshot. Mm-hmm. The discoverers of the fire, the, the builders of pyramids, the makers of cars, they're all taking moonshots. We really are a species of moonshots, even though we've largely forgotten it. We've been seduced into believing that that small dreams are wiser than moonshots, that coasting is better than soaring, that flying lower is safer than flying higher. So even in moments like this, where the world is turned topsy-turvy, where there's so much uncertainty, 
there is a lot of room for moonshot thinking. And moonshot thinking isn't just about dreaming big, by the way. And then, you know, sprinkling some some fairy dust and, and hoping that your dreams magically take flight. That is not what moonshot thinking is. Moonshot thinking is that intersection between pragmatism and idealism. So you are dreaming big, yeah, but you're also combining it with a very actionable plan for actually making your dreams reality. It was actually what I was doing in middle school without realizing it. So yeah, I had this big dream of becoming an astronaut, but I worked backward from that dream to put together this roadmap that I was going to follow, this very concrete action plan for actually achieving my dreams. So it's it's the combination between the two where you combine dreaming big with with an actionable plan for for getting there. That's that's where magic happens. I love that cuz it's so easy to say, well, this is my dream. And, you know, you never get there because you didn't create the plan to achieve the dream. And right, yet, exactly. at the end of your life, you're like, well, you know, dreams really don't come true, I guess. Right. <laughs> not, if, not if you don't do anything. So in your book, you have nine strategies to think like a rocket scientist. Maybe can you share a couple with us to get people wet their appetite to maybe sure. get a look and learn the rest? Yeah. Uh, one of the strategies is first principles thinking. And I'll, I'll illustrate this with a story. And the story is about the founding of SpaceX. And SpaceX made history earlier this year when they became the first private company to put astronauts into space. No other company, private company, had, had accomplished that before. There was actually only three governments in the world. US, Russia, and China that have ever put people into space. And here you have this young, scrappy company beating everybody else, including established aerospace companies and including other major governments. Everybody else, uh, they beat to the finish line. What was their secret? One of their secrets is first principles thinking. When Elon Musk was first thinking about starting SpaceX with this audacious moonshot of, of colonizing Mars one day, he started shopping for rockets. He looked on the American market first. They were way too expensive. He then went to Russia to shop for, I kid you not, decommissioned intercontinental ballistic missiles that he could repurpose as rockets. But even those were, were really expensive. And coming back from Russia empty-handed on one of his shopping trips, he had an epiphany. He realized that his reasoning had been flawed all along. He was, in trying to build rockets that other people had built, he realized that he was simply copying other people's choices. He wasn't reasoning from from first principles. Mm -hmm. So first principles thinking is a way of letting go of everything except for what is essential. So you question all assumptions until you're left with the non-negotiable raw materials. It's like going from a cover band that plays somebody else's music to becoming an original singer, an original songwriter that goes back to the raw materials, the musical notes, and and builds something up from, from scratch. So for Elon Musk, applying that thinking meant going back to the raw materials and asking himself, what do you actually need to put a rocket into space? Like, what are the non-negotiable raw materials of a rocket? And it turns out that if you buy those raw materials on on the market, it's like 2% of the typical price of a rocket, of a used rocket. So he decided, all right, then I'll just build these rockets from scratch myself, which is what he ended up he ended up doing. So if you walk through SpaceX's factories today, you'll see people doing everything from welding titanium to to building in-flight computers. 
And first principles thinking led SpaceX, along with Blue Origin, which is Jeff Bezos' space company, to question another deeply held assumption in rocket science. And that assumption was that rockets could not be reused. So for decades, rockets that delivered their cargo into orbit would either burn up in the atmosphere or plunge into the ocean, requiring an entirely new rocket to be rebuilt. Now, imagine doing that for commercial flights. Like Mm -hmm. I'm in Portland right now, Portland, Oregon. I fly to New York City, the passengers deplane, and then somebody just steps up to the plane and lights it on fire. (laughs) Sounds ridiculous. That's what we did for rockets for decades. And, And a rocket is actually about the same price as a Boeing 737, but spaceflight is so much more expensive because airplanes can be reused over and over again in a really efficient way. And SpaceX and Blue Origin are now both on their way to, to, to changing that assumption, creating these reusable rockets. There is now a landing pad next to the launch pad at Cape Canaveral at Kennedy Space Center. That's a new thing in rocket science. And it was brought to us by First Principles Thinking. And all of these innovations that I'm talking about drastically cut the cost of spaceflight by a factor of 40 and this is just the beginning. So, so we'll see what happens next. But I think that way of operating, so looking at the assumptions in our lives and applying first principles thinking is really a great way for any of us to generate original insights. So you can ask yourself, do I own my assumptions or do my assumptions own me? What is it that I'm doing simply because I've done it before? Or what, what is it that I'm, I'm doing simply because... I think I'm supposed to do it or other people around me are doing it this way. Can you question that assumption and replace it with something better? Because it's only through questioning those assumptions and shedding that old skin and the way that the snake does that, that new ideas can emerge. How do you, I mean, now you work with leaders and you're a speaker and and have a mastermind and, and many ways that you're helping people to kind of implement these principles. And maybe I'm showing my true colors here. I have never considered myself much of a visionary. I'm a very good executor. You know, I like to be in the room when we're coming up with the vision, but then I, once we kind of land on the vision, I am the one that can make it happen. Mm -hmm. So how do you deal with someone maybe like me who either is limiting their own moonshot thinking by coming in with the preconceived notion like that, or who is wired to like you say, remove all of the common ways of thinking and think differently. Well, that causes my mind to go blank. (laughs) How do do I bring in, get rid of my current assumptions and come up with these wild and wacky new ideas to do something like reuse a rocket? (laughs) Yeah. Um, that's a great question. And, and, and I mean, we just met Jennifer, but my, my guess is that you're far more of a visionary than you realize. Oh, thank you. I needed but, to but, hear that from a rocket scientist. <laughs> <laughs> but setting that aside, I think, I think it's a number of things. Like anything, I think moonshot thinking, the ability to question assumptions, the ability to see things other people miss is a muscle. So the more you get into the habit of questioning the assumptions in your life, and it can honestly be as small as like, why are all of our water glasses in this part of the kitchen cabinet? Like, is there a more optimal placement for them? Questioning that particular assumption. My my guess is if your house is anything like mine, like when you first move, you put things someplace and then they remain there, even if there is no good reason for them. So getting into the habit of questioning even those small assumptions is a way of building that muscle. That's number one. 
Number two is divergent thinking. So there's a chapter in the book where I, where I talk about divergent thinking. Often what gets into the vision or the ability to, to dream big or imagine possibilities like reusable rockets that others may not be able to see is we start with constraints. So we start with limitations. We start with you know, what we have in front of us. Divergent thinking is, is a way of setting aside all those limitations, all of those constraints, and just letting your mind run wild with ideas. If you have this audacious dream of colonizing Mars one day, as you do with Elon Musk, you have to cut the cost of spaceflight. So what might be some of the ways of doing that? And then you start creating lists. And, and so reading science fiction actually helps with that. Interestingly, one of the, the first person that Jeff Bezos ever hired for Blue Origin was Neil Stevenson, who's a science fiction writer. And he, Bezos wanted Neil Stevenson to come up with wacky ideas for getting people into space. So there's a lot of value to science fiction thinking, beginning with divergent thinking and then bringing in limitations, you know, budgets and constraints into the mix. But if you start with constraints first, often you stop idea formation before it even begins. So that's another way of doing it. And then one other method that's really powerful is bringing in outsiders into the conversation. So outsiders to that particular industry or field have a way of seeing blind spots, spotting assumptions that the insiders miss. Because often when you've been working too closely, if you're an expert on something, you're often too close to the problem to think differently. Don't get me wrong, expertise is really valuable, but outsiders have a way of coming in and asking what we call those dumb questions, they're actually not dumb at all. Like, mm-hmm. why can't you reuse a rocket? You know, <laughs> why, why wouldn't you be able to do that? Like, why should it be this different from commercial flights is a question that an amateur might ask. And, and a lot of the people I mentioned, by the way, have been outsiders to the industry that they ended up disrupting. So Elon Musk was a latecomer to rocket science. He, after he sold... He was a co-founder of PayPal. After he sold PayPal to eBay, he went to Rio in Brazil and he was on a beach, although his idea of beach reading was the fundamentals of rocket propulsion. So he taught himself rocket science by reading books. Jeff Bezos came to retail to start Amazon from the finance world. Reed Hastings, who's the co-founder of Netflix, was a computer programmer when he spotted all of these assumptions that the established video rental businesses we're operating under. Sarah Blakely, the founder of Spanx, you know, she was selling fax machines door to door until she had this idea. She had no experience in, in fashion, no experience in retail. She had never taken a single business class course before. She started Spanx, the underwear company, and ended up becoming the world's youngest self-made female billionaire. And so outside, bringing an outsider to the conversation, this could be as simple as like asking a friend who knows nothing about what you're working on. If you're within a company, it might be as simple as asking someone from a different division to come in and listen to your presentation and ask you those quote unquote dumb questions. That really has a way of jolting the insiders out of their current perspective and seeing possibilities that they otherwise might miss. It's interesting. Yeah, I've mentioned that presentation about disruption. And I do share some of those examples like, you know, Uber wasn't created by someone from the taxi industry. Airbnb wasn't created by people in the hotel industry. But yet it's hard for me to apply that to my own thinking. So maybe I should, uh, you know, do that as well. Well, how can people 
learn more from you? I know you have a couple of ways that, that people can learn from you. Why don't you share some of that with us? Yeah. The easiest way for folks to get in touch with me is through my email list. You can sign up for that at weeklycontrarian.com. This is a really short email that goes out once a week. It shares one big idea that you can read in three minutes or less. And it's got a, over 25,000 subscribers. So again, it's, it's at weeklycontrarian.com. Another way to engage with me is to get my book, Think Like a Rocket Scientist, which is available wherever books are sold. Mm-hmm. And also at your library, which is where I got it. So. <laughs> awesome. Uh, and I'm signed up for the email list and I, I love your your weekly blogs. They're always very thoughtful and thought-provoking. But one of the things that uh, you mentioned that you'll get if you sign up is what George Costanza and rocket scientists have in common <laughs> and what you can learn from both in starting your next project. So I'm dying to know, what is that? <laughs> so Seinfeld is one of my favorite TV shows. And uh, in one episode, George Costanza, who I think might be one of the best characters ever created for any TV show. But his character pledges to do the opposite of what he had done before. So he says, I'm just going to go through my day and do the exact opposite of, of what I would otherwise do. So he walks into a diner, goes up to this beautiful woman and, and just says, I'm unemployed and I live at home with my parents. Um, <laughs> and ends up like getting a date with her that he otherwise would not be able to get if he was trying to impress her and be his usual uh, George Costanza self. And so that question of what if we did the opposite? What if we did the reverse? And I won't get into the story because it's quite long. It's in the book, but it gave rise to the global positioning system. And we're, they're physicists tracking the, the location of Sputnik. They asked the question of, well, what if we did the opposite? If we put a satellite up there, can we track a location on Earth? And that gave rise to you know, GPS, which we use on a daily basis. And that, by the way, Jennifer, going back to your earlier question about identifying assumptions is a great way of, of doing that as well. So asking yourself, what if I did the opposite of, of what I've always done? Uh, and this can be for a limited amount of time, by the way, just like... In Seinfeld, it could be like one day where you set aside and say, okay, I check my email first thing every morning. Let me go through my day and not check email until 3 p.m. See what difference that would make. Uh, so doing the exact opposite that you've done before. Because the way change usually happens is you think you can't do something. You're then forced to do it or you're brave enough to try. And it turns out that you can and so asking yourself, what if I did the opposite or what if we did the reverse is a powerful way of getting you out of your current perspective and helping you spot possibilities that you otherwise might miss. Yeah, as I'm talking to business leaders and, and speaking now during this time of the pandemic, what I'm really encouraging them to do is to remember this time for exactly that reason. You know, all the things that we said we couldn't do before. Yeah. We can't have people work remotely. We can't, you know, all, you know, remote work is the first thing that comes to mind for a lot of them. But every business out there completely that's still viable or is is on the path to viability had to completely flip so many things that were sacred in yeah. their, their businesses and the way they, would, they dealt with their customers or their people. And it created... I think what will 
when we get through this to whatever is next, it's not the new normal, it's what's next. Uh, you know, when we get to a period of time, we say, well, like, we're good for right now. I hope and think that we will look back and see the amount of innovation that came out of what happened February, March of 2020 in a lot of the world for the world of work. Because so many businesses and business leaders for years held all these sacred cows that were untouchable that overnight had to be not only touched, but tipped over, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, yep. so it's like, we, you know, I've said this to myself and to my son and to others, you know, we will look back on this time and say, it was one of the best things that ever happened to us. I believe that. Not, not you know, from from many respects, but I think in terms of how we have gotten better mm-hmm. as companies, as individuals, as leaders, as business owners, whatever it is, there will be innovations that come out of this for all of us because we were forced to. Yeah. So what I try to work with leaders on is, is what can you learn from this that you can apply going forward on an intentional basis right. so that it's not something like this that forces you into that innovation. So I think your book and your your email list, your writings, your teachings are a good way to kind of maybe acquire that discipline. So thanks for that. Well, and finally, I will link to all those things in the show notes so people can connect with you. But another thing that kind of caught my eye after signing up for your email list was that I would learn why doing nothing is more valuable what I think. So please share with me because I would like to do some nothing, but I I can't convince myself it's valuable. (laughs) Yeah, there is so much value to doing nothing, to getting bored, to doing all of these things that you were chastised for by your teachers, you know, daydreaming, for example, being one of them. We tend to think that we're just wasting time by getting bored or by doing nothing, but it's quite the opposite. When you do nothing, the default mode network in your brain lights up. And that network is associated with creativity. When you start daydreaming, that's when your brain starts making these connections between disparate ideas and combining them and mixing them to come up with original insights. It's really hard to innovate when you are in hustle mode, when you're trying to clear out your inbox. That's not when innovation happens. That's not when new ideas, visionary ideas come to light. And this, by the way, is a reason why you know a lot of for a lot of people, their best ideas come in the shower, you know, because they're in this, they're in an environment where doing, we're doing basically nothing. You are free from distractions. You're just sitting there by yourself. And that's when the ideas arrive. And the goal, again, is to really make that a practice outside of the shower. This could be a walk where you're not listening to a podcast, where you're not trying to be productive, but just walking for the sake of walking. There are so many stories in the book of scientists being stuck with a problem and then literally walking themselves into the solution. And, and I call this in my day airplane mode. And I'll put this on my calendar and I'll schedule 20 minutes every day for doing nothing. I'll sit in my recliner or we have a sauna in our backyard. I'll go into the sauna. Uh, I will bring a notepad with me just in case ideas come, but I don't have an agenda when I want to walk in. And I'll just sit there and, and reflect on what comes. I would suggest starting small because, you know, when you're in this mode of constantly being connected and constantly doing something, it can become really hard to go from that even 20 minutes. There are studies, I started a research study in the book of college students where researchers asked them to stay in a room for 15 minutes. That's it. 
but like they couldn't bring their smartphone, they couldn't bring anything else with them. They had the option of either sitting there by themselves doing nothing or giving themselves electric shocks. <laughs> and a surprising amount of them, uh, for, I think for men, it was over 50%. For women, I think it was around 30%, but don't quote me on that, but it may have been slightly over 30%, chose to give themselves a shock uh, rather than just sit there and do nothing left to their own devices. And so there is a lot of value to getting into that habit of, of doing nothing, building those moments intentionally into your day. And honestly, looking back at my life, since I started doing this airplane mode three, four years ago, that's when the best ideas come. Uh, like the best ideas I've had in recent memory, including the idea for Think Like a Rocket Scientist, came in those moments of slack and not hard labor. It's like that saying, you know, it's the silence in between the notes that mm -hmm. makes the music. And I think it's true for our own lives as well. well. I'm going to take a lot away from this conversation with you, but I'm going to take away the permission to do nothing. Airplane mode. I like exactly. that. Exactly. <laughs> I'm going to schedule some of that on my calendar. Well, thank you so much for being with us today, Ozan. I really am glad that we connected and I enjoy learning from you. And thank you for sharing with my community. Thank you so much, Jennifer, for having me on. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. It's time for you to get noticed, create change, and grow your influence. Don't waste any time. Subscribe to this podcast and help us get the word out by leaving a review.